Welcome to a little extra from the Windswept and Interesting podcast. It's a bit more windswept and a little bit more interesting. Scotland's Biodiversity Minister, the Green Party's Lorna Slater, has been in the news and under a bit of pressure recently over the failed bottle return scheme. Deer management has also poked its head over the parapet with changes to the rules on stalking, not universally liked by either side of the debate. So I thought this might be of interest. I interviewed her last August for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for a piece about the Canadian trying to break up Britain. Once that was done, I still had 25 minutes of my slot with her left, so I rattled through all my favourite environmental topics with her. That included deer management, and I pushed her on it with some interesting results. Remember, this is from last year, so some views and context will have changed. But first up, I asked her about plans for a new national park in Scotland. In planning for the creation of a new national park, we have started a national consultation, and the first phase of that has already been done. We're looking at the responses right now, asking the people of Scotland what they think a national park should be and what a national park should be for. I think it's the right time to, to have a look at what a national park is for and what they, we want them to deliver locally, but also for the nation as a whole. So I think that's an exciting... We're, we're in an exciting time to look at that. I think Scotland's national parks have a really important role to play, not only in Scotland, but in the world, to show how people and nature can live and thrive together. If we can get it right in national parks, we can get it right everywhere. But what's your personal view? Do you think that there should be more of a conservation bent in these parks? Because at the moment, there's quite a lot of complaints that there's you know, huge amounts of driven grouse, moors and so forth within national parks, which a lot of people think are quite negative to the environment. Would you like to see the focus of national parks in Scotland to be, to be more on environmental rewilding, conservation, that sort of thing? Both of the national parks do have ambitious plans for nature restoration, for restoring peatlands, for planting trees, and also for improving visitor services and public transport and all those things. So the parks have these really ambitious park plans, which I absolutely do support. What we have to do is make sure that we take everyone along with us. What the Scottish government has committed to is what we call 30 by 30. So 30% of Scotland protected for nature by 2030. And I think our national parks have a substantial role to play in that. Exactly what that role is, is really for the people of Scotland to decide and discuss. We want to have that consultation so that we make sure that we take everyone with us because we think that's really important. There could be scepticism from some people if you're suggesting that that the national parks, as they exist at the moment, are part of that 30%. The national parks will definitely need to contribute to that 30%. And that's what the conversation we need to have. What does protected for nature mean? And what does that mean for the people and businesses and communities in those areas? What does it mean for Scotland's biodiversity? It's a really exciting time to be having these conversations to help people create a vision for for the Scotland that they want. Something that we're consulting on just now is our Scotland's biodiversity strategy. So that is aiming to stop the decline in our biodiversity, because we've had a a catastrophic decline in our biodiversity over the last 30 years. We've lost 24%. Um, By 2030, we want to stop that decline. And by 2045, we want to substantially restore nature in Scotland. That's a big change. Um, 
So, and I think the national parks do have a, a key role to play in that, not only demonstrating what that change looks like, but showing how we can transition communities through it. Okay, so some specifics on that, some of my favourite topics. Um, beavers, the translocation policy, I, I have heard on the grapevine that you're very keen. Um, can it be speeded up? Can it be, can we, can we, can we get it going? There was a suggestion from um, Forestry Land Scotland that they would get some of the translocations, which you know the implications of that, um, going this year. Can you, can you make that happen? Beavers in Scotland is very exciting. So beavers have been extinct. They were hunted to extinction about 300 years ago. And when my father grew up in the UK, they were extinct, they weren't there. We have started, uh, they were reintroduced into Scotland a few years ago, and now we have the government policy to allow translocations of beavers all across Scotland. So that means reintroducing beavers at suitable sites all over Scotland. That is hugely exciting. That means children growing up today in Scotland will consider beavers to be part of their natural heritage, and that is marvellous. We're moving ahead on that as quickly as we can. As you say, we've got several um, private organisations, but also third sector organisations and public organisations who have suitable sites, who are applying for those beavers. We have to do all the right checks to make sure you know the right consultations and things are done, but I'm very keen to accelerate that so that we get those moving. There, there were some translocations last year. We have already had a few. I very much hope there'll be some more this year and then going into next year, uh, increasing every year. So that is just such an exciting project and of course because beaver is Canada's national an animal it is wonderful to see them I I saw this uh, on, tw on Twitter the, the other day but that you know beavers make such a difference to our natural environment they create more reservoirs uh, you know than some of the privately owned water companies have <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true I saw it on Twitter but but they do make su such a difference to our biodiversity with their management of water with their creating of sort of these micro ecosystems where invertebrates and birds can thrive I can't wait to see them all over Scotland this year translocations more translocations I would this very year? much hope to see some more this year right great okay um one of my other favorites of it one of my other favorites of it is rhododendrons oh yeah do you know about this? No, there's a, obviously mm -hmm. do you know about this it's it's a huge problem and uh, I think it was four or five years ago I was told that it would cost 400 million pounds to get rid of rhododendrons and they are a, a, an ongoing threat to our biodiversity. I mean, at the moment, I, I think this figure for rhododendron removal is still around £2 million a year, where the experts are telling me, and, and it was Forestry Land Scotland came up with a £400 million figure. Um, when are we going to do more? So invasive non-native species, of which the particular difficulty with rhododendron is rhododendron ponticum, um, is part of my portfolio area and it isn't just rhododendron we have Japanese knotweed we have Japanese hogweed we've got Himalayan balsam there are many invasive species there are some really excellent initiatives on I went to visit one the other week uh, this is something called the CC project and they are working with landowners up and down the river systems um, this is particularly on hogweed but also on other things because the way the hogweed seeds flow down the rivers so they work with land managers all the way along because with all of these invasive species it's not enough to just clear the ground once. You have to keep going back year after year. But each year you have to do a slightly different thing. The first year is the worst, the second year is maintenance. So there's a level of expertise, there's a level of understanding so that land managers know what the right thing is to do. You don't want to 
chop chop up the knotweed and throw it around the field, you'll just end up with more knotweed. You need to know, so there's a level of expertise that CC provide. There's that level of multi-year commitment to reducing the species. And there's that systematic approach. There's no point in eradicating something downstream if there's a big source of seed upstream. You have to do it in a systematic way. So there are projects in Scotland supported in part by our, um, our funding for nature restoration to systematically get rid of invasive species along waterways. So that's a start of those kind of projects. You, there are, you're right, national projects, you know, probably required in the future to manage these things. But I'm excited by how we've gotten started uh, and I'm looking forward to doing more work in that area. We're going to push on that one. Rhododendrons, 40 million a year versus 2 million a year. It's, it's just not enough, is it? I mean, we need, we, these things will, will destroy our, um, our rainforest, destroy much of our native woodland and all the biodiversity that goes with it. They're a major threat. Can we not put more money into this? The, I mean, the rhododendron and herbivore pressures are the two top threats to our, our native Atlantic rainforest. I mean, I'm very hopeful that some of these green finance initiatives can be framed for exactly these sort of things. So there's a big push for green finance to support ecological restoration to support our climate goals and uh, you know that is part of the project to make sure that we have the right amount of funding to restore these sorts of things so absolutely it needs more funding and we're looking forward to finding ways to get that so for what you're saying that would involve sort of private finance yeah exactly green finance is big there's a lot of private money available for this for these sorts of projects but we've got to find the right financial vehicles so that's a big project right now is to figure out how to tap into because there's no way the public purse has enough to do all the nature restoration all the carbon sequestration all the different pieces of the tackling the climate and nature crisis that simply isn't going to be possible so we will need that private investment and it's finding ways for that investment to be done in a way that supports communities in a way that supports our climate and nature goals and that is an ongoing project but it you know it's got some exciting potential Grouse moors. Mm. Um, should we ban driven grouse and the maintenance that goes with it? It is absolutely not the Scottish Government's position to ban uh, grouse moors. What we are looking at is, is licensing to make sure that good practice is used everywhere. Okay, and th there's a lot of pressure on to do more about it, to, 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 to stop it. Is there any way we can restrict it? I mean, wh wh what do you think of it? What do you think of driven grouse moors? Are they, are they environmentally sustainable? We, licensing grouse moors so that we have good practice everywhere is absolutely the right direction to go and that is something the Scottish Government is committed to. What do you think of them? The Scottish Green Party have um, negotiated in the cooperation agreement some items which are uh, exceptions to the Butte House Agreement and what we call blood sports or elsewhere referred to as field sports, is one of those areas, an excluded item. So the Scottish Greens are not in favour of, of blood sports. Um, so that is just one of those areas that we differ on. But getting them licensed and having that good practice everywhere, because you know many landowners are extremely responsible, and we want to make sure that all landowners are equally responsible. So we've got the big question coming up. Does Lorna Slater back the use of compulsion to make landowners cull a certain number of deer every year? We'll be back in one minute. Deer management. Now, this is, this is also a, a, another hot topic, isn't it? The big suggestion from the report last year, the working group report, was that we should have compulsory cull targets. Um, obviously, that's provoked quite a lot of reaction from um, 
conventional dealer managers because it would take control from them over uh, what's going on on the ground. When are we going to get the compulsory pull targets going? Because it was the recommendation. The government accepted that recommendation. When is it going to happen? So th there were 99 recommendations made by that group. So there's a lot of work going in there because, again, the big part of uh, deer management and tackling these big challenges is to get everyone to work together. I was actually preparing a speech today um, to take to it's the Project for Good Relations who is working on building collaboration between different types of land management to support the deer management goals because we have people and organizations coming from quite different directions but actually they have a lot in common. Everybody wants sustainable deer management. Everybody wants to work towards restoring Scotland's nature and tackling our climate crisis. And everybody can see the damage that too many deer do to freshly restored peat, due to regenerating woodlands. So we all have some common ground there that I think we need to expand and develop on because we can all agree that too many deer is, is a problem. I think the preference is to be strategic and make sure that it's the deer impacts that we're looking at so that we can have that regeneration where we need it to be. But one of the, the, the outstanding one of the 99 recommendations that was accepted was effectively to bring in a system that would allow compulsory cool targets to be set on a, on a regular basis. That, that would be the norm. Um, when is it going to happen? The 99 recommendations are being worked on by the DEER Working Group. They're all 99 are important in terms of delivering that DEER management. The important thing is that we do have that collaborative and cooperative working so that we bring everyone with us or we simply won't succeed. And do you think you'll be able to persuade the, 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 the traditional stalking uh, community that, 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 that uh, a Nature Scott official telling them how many deer they've got to cull is, gonna, is a good idea? What you've described there is an example of how we wouldn't want to implement that relationship. The relationship right now is based on things like deer management groups, uh, agreements between different land managers, how they will cooperatively manage their deer. And that is the model going forward. We absolutely don't intend it to be a sort of top-down declaration. We want to work with people with their land and their goals to do what's right for them. It, it sounds as if you're backing away from the compulsory goals. The government has committed to those recommendations, as you say. The question is how you build those good relationships so that we can deliver on those goals. The scenario you set out of an official telling a land manager what to do would not have a positive outcome necessarily. We, we need to seek those positive outcomes, and that comes from that working together in a collaborative way. The, the present system is one of compromise, and there is ultimately the big stick that can be waved at the Section 8 agreement. You know, how, how, are we just going to carry on with more of the same or are we going to move towards a position where, where you know, local uh, Nature Scott officials can say, no, this is what you've got to do without going through the rigmarole of a Section 7 and then a Section 8? Are we going to do that? The, uh, well, I mean, you've, you've described again a very specific scenario. Nature Scott has those powers and can use them. The preference is always to do it in a collaborative and cooperative way. And those deer management groups are very successful. We've had some excellent success with, with them. Things like the Cairngorm Connects project, for example, has allowed an enormous landscape scale change in regenerative woodland. So it is neither the case that it is business as usual, nor is it the case that officials are going to suddenly crack down on everybody. It is a case that it's a progressive 
snowballing effect change. As people learn more about land management, where those cooperative measures are in place, that you know the deer management groups work very well. And then Nature Scott has those powers and has the ability to use them if that proves necessary. Are those, going to, are those powers going to be changed? Are those powers going to be ramped up? I, I'm not, I, I don't have a particular take on that one. The, the Nature Scott does have the powers that we need. I don't, I'm not aware that we need to ramp those up. But you know, the Deer Working Group will come back with some implementation recommendations, I'm sure. I mean, you mentioned the successful Kangaroo Connect, Connects, but there's also the, I think it's the Southeast Grampian Deer Management Group, which has actually had to call for a Section 7 agreement across its whole area, with a view to eventually it becoming a, a Section 8 for some of the recalcitrant is that's an example of it really not working the way it would be much easier if you're south, uh, if, the, if the guy, I can't remember his name, the guy in that area, the nature's got down there, he could just say, no, you, you, you know, we've agreed this, this is what you've got to do. But that's what a section seven and section eight would do. So I, I think that's an example more, of it working. Convoluted, isn't that, it? But that's an example of it working where a deer management group has said, you know, we've, we've attempted a cooperative thing. Actually, it would be really helpful if Nature Scott could give us some backup here. And Nature Scott has the powers to do that. So I, I think that's an example of it working. Uh, when, a group, when the group itself has said, look, we could use this help. So we're going to stick with the system of the Section 7 and the Section 8? And the Section 10. There is a Section 10. Section 10. What does that involve? <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all part of a different spectrum. So the, the toolkits are there. Uh-huh. You know, but we need to use them strategically and in line with what the deer working groups have. All of it is so important to make sure that land managers have the right information and are have the right sort of level of cooperation and encouragement to, to do the right thing. And you know, they they nearly always do. And when deer management groups need that backup from Nature Scott, that backup is available to them. So you wouldn't would you anticipate further legislation that would enable um easier compulsion of, of um, uh, uh, estate owners to, to, to pull certain measures I'm not aware that we've exhausted the use of section 7, 8 or 10 powers. Those powers are available for use should we need them. Yes or no? Are you gonna, is there going to be a new law on it? I, I mean, it depends what the working group comes up with. I'm not aware that there is anything in the pipeline on that, but you know, the, I, I, don't, I don't want to close the door to it either. The section 8 Seven, eight, and ten powers are available, and they could be used more widely. Okay, I'll shut up Sh- about should they be needed? I'll shut up about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rewilding is a difficult term, and it's become heavily loaded. Um, what, what, what do you make of it? Do you think it's Do you think it's a, a good idea? Do you think, in general, we should have more rewilding going on? Again, as you say, rewilding is a term that doesn't really have a common definition. I think nature restoration. Is, is a better word. We talk about repeopling as well. Um, that's something we really want is to repeople the highlands, for example. And we were talking about that with the National Park Plan yesterday. How do we make sure that all of our natural spaces, including our national parks, are great places for people to live and work? And I think some of the concern around the world word rewilding is that it might exclude people. I don't think that, but because people worry about that, I think that any sort of you know, any sort of land management, whether it's forestry, whether it's regenerative farming, whether it's tourism, all has land and people working closely together. But I think the nature restoration is probably the word that people feel more comfortable with. Um, And it's really going to be interesting to see with the biodiversity strategy, what the consultation returns in terms of what people want nature restoration in Scotland to look like. Right, okay. 
And what about the, 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 the hot button topics? Um, reintroduction of the lynx, reintroduction of the wolf. They're, they're well, you know, they're, they're, the reintroduction of the lynx is being talked about as a realistic possibility um, by a lot of conservationists, by a lot of very respectable scientists. And it, it, would, it would give us various benefits. What do you think? Do you think it's a good idea? Should we have lynxes back prowling around in Hollywood Park? At the moment, we're focusing very much on the reintroduction of beavers, which has had substantial challenges around it, but I am very excited about. So we're working on getting beavers all over Scotland. Um, I think it will be interesting to see how the discussion on lynx and other uh, you know, predators develop over the next few years. Given the challenges we've had with beavers, I suspect we're not quite ready for lynx yet. There may be lessons to be learned from the reintroduction of the, of the white-tailed eagle there, with an apex predator coming in and there being obviously problems with that, do you think? Well, I don't know if there are obviously problems with that. I think but some of the data... Farmers, they would say. But I think some of the data on that is, is not complete. Um, I think that there are absolutely challenges. A big part of this is make sure that we have the right evidence in place, the right mitigations. But it's a very exciting conversation to have is what does nature restoration look like in Scotland? And what does that mean for the people who live and work in those places? Uh, it's, it's got to be part of an ongoing conversation. And I think as people get used to living beside nature, that the conversations will become easier. The um, one reintroduction that's happened in a, perhaps a similar way to, to beavers is the reintroduction of, of wild boar or, or feral pigs or whatever you want to call them. Um, that's a, a, a difficult one. I've done some stuff on that recently where people have got fairly strong evidence of them attacking livestock and that sort of thing. Farmers are concerned about the spread of disease by these, these, these animals. And they're also concerned that Nature Scott had a report seven years ago saying we've got to do something about this and nothing was done. Is it time to do something about, about um, feral pigs, about wild boar in Scotland? There's one estimate is there's 5,000 of, 5, of them running around out there. There are an assortment of challenges that we've got in Scotland with, with different species. Uh, it's, it's going to be a kind of ongoing discussion about use of resources, where the main risks are to businesses where the risk are, you know, if there's health and safety risk, that is just going to have to be part of an ongoing conversation. So yeah, it's, that is definitely one of the things on the table is, is what do we do about, about that is, you know, again, everything has to be evidence-based. Mm -hmm. But we were told seven years ago, we should do something about it, otherwise we're going to end up like Texas. You know, something's gone wrong there, hasn't it? Well, we, we haven't ended up like Texas. So. Well, we've, we've, we've ended up with prob serious problems in some, some parts of the country, and obviously that was a forecast for, for, the, for the, the more distant future. We are, still aren't doing anything. We still don't have a, a policy of, of either deciding that there are native species, as the, as the conservationists would like, of, of having a control system. We're, we're saying it's down to individual land managers, and the farmers telling me yesterday that the problem with that is that some land managers might want to control them, but those that don't... The, the pigs will just replicate there and, and reinvent. It's, it's, a, it's a problem that we need a policy on, isn't it? it? It's absolutely a challenging problem. I mean, what you've described there, you could easily say the same about deer. It's, you know, it's a similar sort of problem where we've got to deal with all of our, you know, all of our species, the wildlife management, as well as the invasive species, the invasive plants and so on. So you've described beautifully some of the ongoing challenges that we've got in Scotland to both manage our wildlife you know, and to make sure that our nature restoration moves forward as the way we'd want it to um, it is a challenging but exciting space to work in. All these things, though, come down to money, don't they? They come down to what's in the budget. 
Can you do you see yourself being able to push for more money for these things and getting you know, the government to focus and realise that these are serious problems? If we're serious about biodiversity, which obviously the government wants to be serious, about, do you think you'll be able to get more cash in the budget as a green politician and as a green minister? Will you be able to get more money for those things? I think there's two elements to that. One is, as we discussed earlier in our conversation, um, to do the entire biodiversity nature restoration piece and climate challenge piece, we absolutely know the public purse cannot support that. That we, we absolutely need private investment as well. That getting that private investment is a big part of you know, the green finance initiatives that we're looking at. The important thing about that green finance is that private finance is that it's in the right places, that it's supporting communities, that it is working for Scotland. Uh, so there will absolutely need to be private investment in all of these things, but I don't think it's entirely about money either. A lot of it is about this sort of relationship building, and I'll, I'll turn back again to that excellent CC project, which is been funded partly by the Nature Restoration Fund, but a lot of it, the work they do is by volunteers, and a lot of their work is that building relationship with land managers going, do you know you have this on your land? Do you know that actually when you're chopping that weed up, that that's going to spread that weed instead of instead of killing it. Here's the right way. So some of it is that confidence building. Oh, I understand the problem and I understand how to do it. Some of it is knowing how to build the relationship with your neighbor saying, well, your hogweed's seeding my land. Let's build a relationship here so that we tackle it together. It isn't strictly about money. It is also about relationship building and knowledge sharing. A lot of money would help though. Would it not? But that's why we have these green finance initiatives to bring in that private money. Thanks for listening. And remember, the regular podcast is every first Wednesday and third Wednesday in the month. You can contact me through Twitter. I'm at Scott Nature Corps. And ideas and suggestions for the podcast and any criticism will be very welcome. Thanks. Thanks.